Um, again, just like Blake said, we're so glad you're here. If I've not got to meet you yet, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor around here. And uh, I, again, I'm thankful that you're with us. I'm thankful that you've kind of carved out a Sunday morning to be here. And uh, it's really fun. Like to me, one of the best parts about what we do is getting to worship together, but it's also to journey together through God's word. And so every time I get up here, there's like a healthy set of nerves that start to fire up in me because I'm like, I really want to make sure that that what I'm saying matters because I, here's what I believe. As a church, if, if you call Center Church your home or if you're exploring calling Center Church your home, uh, we don't just exist together. Uh, we want to be connected. And there's a big difference, right? You've got people in your life who you exist next to, you work next to, you get, they cut your hair, they, they bag your groceries, they're around, you maybe even know their name, but you're not connected. And there's a big difference. Like to me, the church is not just a place where you coexist with other human beings who are on a spiritual journey, but it is a place where we're connected. I can think about two specific people in my life. I won't throw them under the bus in case they're watching, but there's two specific people in my life. And I meet with these people monthly. I meet with these people monthly and almost every single month, no matter how many times, some of them I've been meeting with them for like a, over a year, the same kind of, kind of questions about me come up. So they'll be like, what's your wife's name again? Hey, where do you live again? Hey, what kind of car do you drive again? Like things that when you have normal conversation with people, you should know, right? Does anyone else have anyone in their life? And it's, you can't blame it on dementia at this point. They're too young for that. Like, there's no way it's that. And they didn't have a traumatic brain injury that I'm aware of. So it's like, it's just interesting because I have like, the, it feels like the same conversation with them over and over. I'm like, am I living in a TV show? Like, what, what is happening? But to me, it's evidence. And again, you have people like this. Uh, it's evidence that you can exist next to people and not really be deeply connected. You can be in a class with someone, you can sit next to someone for, for weeks, if not months, and maybe know like a little bit about them, but you wouldn't trust them with your life. You wouldn't share any deep pain. You wouldn't ask them to pray for you. It's just like you exist next to people, but necessarily don't have to be connected. And I want to ask the question, if you can live in a Christian environment, probably none of you are, are, are stepping into this room or watching online and you've never heard the name Jesus you don't know what a Christian is. All of us have kind of a baseline understanding. But how is it possible that you can exist around God but not be connected to him? Like, how is that possible? The second question I would have that, that burns in my, my soul some days if I'm quiet long enough is what do you do with that feeling of disconnection from God? Like, what do you do when you feel disconnected from God? A lot of us have ways of responding to that that can actually be really unhealthy. But the truth is, as you look from the very first pages of scripture, you and I were built for connection with God. You and I were built for connection with our creator. It, it matters that you didn't just magically appear in this room. It, it does matter that you have a designer, that you have a God who loves you. You have a God who from the very beginning of time pursued after you that you were created in his beautiful and perfect image. And as you look from the very beginning, if you have a Bible or device, I want to encourage you to go to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, here's what we read. This is starting in verse 8. So God has done the work of creating. He's created the heavens, the earth. He's created creatures, and he takes his Sabbath rest. And then in verse 8, listen to what the, the writer of Genesis says. 
Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Talking about Adam here. Now the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. There the, the writer goes on to list these couple rivers that are here. And then in verse 15, the writer continues, says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I want to pause there before we read the next couple verses. Eden is the Hebrew word for delight or enjoyment or joy. Really what Eden was always supposed to be. And if you've been around church, maybe you already know this, but, but Eden was supposed to be a place where God and man had connection, where they actually walked together, where they were in right, beautiful, flourishing relationship together. And Eden was this place. It was this garden, but it was kind of a temple between God and man. It was this place to, to connect with God's presence. So God takes a man, verse 15, he puts him in this garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then he goes on uh, to continue this creation narrative. He creates Eve and, and when we get into marriage and all that stuff. So what I think is really interesting is that from the very beginning of time, again, you and I were created for connection with God. And in this story, in the beginning of Genesis, that connection with God happens in a place. It happens in Eden. And there is a relationship happening, but it's centered on this garden. Now, here's what I know. If, if you're here today or you're watching and you're not a follower of Jesus, you may be like, what's this story have to do with me? This is what you crazy Christian people believe. Why are you, why are you putting this on me? And here's all I want to say. I hope that for the next few moments no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, that you understand at least what we believe about this and you understand where we think we came from and why that has dramatic implications for every single day we live. That's what we believe. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you're nodding your head because that's, that, that's what you and I have signed up for and submitted our lives to. But here's what's interesting. From the very beginning, God's presence was located in a place, but here's what happens. This temple, this, this Eden ends up moving but God's presence stayed. I mean, that's a huge theme in scripture, okay, that we're going to explore. We're going to try to get into this in like 30 minutes and cover the, the spectrum of the story here. The temple moved, this place of God's presence and in connection with mankind, it did move, but his presence, who he was, his character, his desire, his pursuit of you and I as human beings it stayed. It was constant. It was steadfast. It didn't quit. It didn't, it wasn't based just on the place. Now here's why that matters. Uh, there's this old Hebrew word called hakal and hakal is the Hebrew word for temple. It's sanctuary. And it's, it's one of the most primary words in the old Testament used talking about again, the temple, this place where God's presence was, even though it had moved, even though the physical location of the temple and God's people had moved. Well, then you scan ahead to the New Testament and the word's different. They barely use the word temple in the New Testament. The word they use referring to this place of connection between God and mankind is the word ecclesia. It's a Greek term for gathering or, or believers who are in the same room. They're together. And so the word had changed. Now, if you're a Jewish person and you're thinking about the, the place where God's presence is, again, your mind would go to the temple. 
you'd be, you would know probably by heart a passage like first King six, uh, first King six through eight is this incredible account of how detailed and costly and majestic God's temple was supposed to be. Some of you have probably read this. You ever read through the Bible before, you know, it's like there's humongous chunks of scripture dedicated to how many cubits, which none of you know what that means. And I don't either like how many cubits and and this kind of wood, and you got to go up the hill to get this kind of rock and ore and silver and gold and bronze. It's like incredibly, if you're a type A person, you're going to love reading about the temple in first Kings six. It's like insane amount of detail. But again, why was there so much detail in the temple? Why did it matter? Because in this time and in the time that we've read, Israel's primary place of connecting with God was in the temple. It was in a place. It was a place centric faith. It was a place centric relationship that took place. So it really, really mattered how it was designed. It really, really mattered that, that they followed God's instructions for this temple building to be very, very specifically followed. There was a design, there was an intent. I mean, you can read this in first Kings six through eight, the temple mattered so much that Israel literally had a 14 day festival celebrating this temple opening. Like we had a grand opening it was not that cool compared, compared to this. Okay. So we did not do a 14 day festival. We did not kill 22,000 cattle and, and we have like the biggest barbecue known to Byron center history. Like we didn't have that. We didn't kill and slaughter 120,000 sheep, but they did this. Like they go through all of these kind of steps to just honor and celebrate the fact that the temple was open. Well, if you track through the old Testament, something really, really awful happens. Something happens to the people of Israel, not just once, but multiple times. The people of Israel become displaced. The people of Israel move away from where the temple is. I mean, a perfect example of this, there's this neighboring uh, nation uh, around Israel called Babylon. And Babylon is kind of like the king, the top bad guy near them. This is Babylon's temple, right? So if you thought that, that God's temple was amazing, this is Babylon's temple to their pagan idols and to their leaders. It was incredibly ornate and specifically designed just like Israel's temple. But instead of this, this whole temple, this whole system that you're seeing was designed for idol worship. It was designed to worship deities that they believed were real and and leaders that they thought were divine. It's like very, very detailed and specific, just like God's people. I mean, it's probably rated R to share some of the things that would happen in these temples because they were worshiping other gods outside of Yahweh. And so you think as, as Israelite people get moved from their place, they live, they get taken in exile to Babylon. And then they eventually Babylon gets overtaken. They get taken back over by another King, the, the King of Persia. And basically the King of Persia, Cyrus at the time was like, you guys can go back where you're from. You're not doing us any good. You're too small. You're not that big of a deal. If you want to go back to your hometown and find your little temple, you can do that. And so after this painful period of exile, Israel goes back to their place. Now we just covered like a ton of scripture. Everyone's still awake and with me and at least somewhat there. Okay. Just making sure. Cause I don't want to make sure I get lost. Cause then if you get lost, it'll be really bad. But here's what happens. Israel goes back. But what had happened over time after all of these turnovers in the, in the area that they were living, their temple had fallen into ruin. Now hear me, that's not just like a commentary on their infrastructure. That's a commentary on their spirituality. 
their temple had fallen into ruin. They go back to rebuild this temple and there starts to become some opposition and they begin stalling the work. Like literally people were paid, neighboring nations were paying people to come to Israel and say, you don't need to rebuild this temple. It's not that big of a deal. Just rebuild it kind of like halfway. If you do it halfway, your God will be pleased. And so they end up stopping. And think about that in context of first Kings six, right? This incredibly beautiful, ornate temple. Why was it so much? Because they believed that's where you connected with God. You fast forward, they go through this exile, they come back, they're getting opposition after opposition. And here's what Haggai, a book that maybe some of us have never read. I want you to turn there. If you have to look in the table of contents, totally okay. It won't be on the screen. So if you want to find it, you got to really want it. Haggai one, I'm going to start in verse one. Here's what happens. The temple's in disarray, it's in ruin. And this prophet steps up. Haggai one, verse one, in the second year, of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jodazak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, he's talking about Israel. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Verse three, if you're reading with me, you know God's about to drop a bomb here. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, talking about the temple, remains a ruin? God is indicting his people for, for glorifying their own homes instead of his house. And then in verse five, he keeps going and says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This, I read this like a loving dad. And my dad used to say, I want you to think about what you're doing. <laughs> and then I would still do it because I was an idiot. But, but, but if you're a good parent, you say things like that, right? You're like, I just want you to think about it. You can do this, but I want you to really think about it. He says it again in verse seven, give careful thought, Israel, to your ways. And then he gives them an invitation. Verse eight, Haggai one, he says, go up into the mountains, bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Talking about coming back from exile. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor in all your hands. Why, why does this matter? Why does it matter to you? Why does Haggai's prophecy and rebuke of Israel matter to you today? It goes back to that simple reality that the scriptures start with. The temple may have moved, but God's presence stayed and the temple is still where we primarily connect with God. And I get it. You're sitting there like, hey, did you not just live through the last two years that I've lived through? And, and I have. I get that. But what happens and that we see in Haggai 1 is that the work on this temple, building up God's house, it, it stalled when opposition came. It just stopped. They, they gave up. They were like a year into the rebuilding project and they stopped doing it. And instead they focus on their own houses. 
They start to look internal. They start to worry about, well, what about our house? What about us? What about my car? What about my job? At the neglect of the church, at the neglect of God's temple. For me, this is something I wrestled with. Like for me, this got pretty real. Uh, I think about May 2020. In May 2020, and I've been a pastor for almost eight years. It's my vocation. I've given my life to it. I love our church. I love everything that we're getting to do. And I, I believe, like I've said so many different times, that the best is yet to come for us. But I had, to, I had a reckoning moment in May 2020. I was sitting in my guest room at my makeshift home office, and I was listening to Lindsay across the hall in her makeshift home office in what is now our nursery. She's sitting there and she's on a Zoom call. I'm on a Zoom call and I have this like out of body experience. You ever had these where you're like, I'm doing something, but I'm not really there. I'm kind of like watching myself do it. I'm sitting there in May of 2020 and I'm asking, do I still want to do this? Like how much do I believe in what we just talked about for the last 17 minutes? about the temple, about the church, about where God's presence is and the hope of the world. And I, I walked out of that meeting and Lindsay and I were sitting down at lunch and I was like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Like there's so much division, even within our church, there's, I'm getting more criticism than I've ever gotten. I, I'm more confused about what I'm supposed to do as a community leader with COVID and everything else than I ever have been. Like, I, I just don't know. If I'm supposed to still do this, like I had a, a reckoning moment. And so for the next couple hours, I was like, well, what I should do is look for some other jobs because of center tanks and we run out of money and we come back from this uh, stay at home order and it doesn't move forward. And I've been here for four years and I've tried my best. I've given my all. I should probably have a backup plan. And so I started to literally look up backup plans. I was like, what do you do as a pastor? You're not super marketable in a lot of trades. So I, I, I was sitting in my, and this is very spiritual. This is how you should always make life decisions. I was sitting there watching the UPS driver drive up and down my street. And I said, he gets to wear shorts to work. I should do that. <laughs> I said to Lindsay, I was like, maybe I should go do that. Like they're outside. I like being outside. It's sunny and warm. He's in shorts. He's got his cute little hat. And I basically ended up not doing that because for a lot of reasons, basically I was like, you know what, if I did that and Lindsay and I were talking about this, like I just look like a paler Steve Irwin minus the crocodiles. If I did that, like Rest in peace, Steve Irwin. But it would like not be, it just wouldn't be a, a great call. So I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't be a UPS driver. Maybe I should look at some other things. So there was other churches hiring at the time. All that to say, I was facing what I think Israel faced. And here's what you face when it comes to this temple conversation. We all face opposition. There was internal opposition. It wasn't anything being done to me necessarily, but it was a internal wrestling about whether or not I was going to give my life to the temple of God, whether or not I was going to give my life to what we now call the ecclesia or the church. You have those things too. Some of them are internal. Some of them are competing priorities. Some of you, some of you look around, there's people who are not here just because there's competing priorities. There's other things to do Sunday morning. There's, there's a tension with your kids and trying to put them in positions, whether it's sports or other things that you get torn both ways. There's maybe a lack of family support. Maybe you're sitting here and you're the only one in your family who believes what you believe and is on, you're on the spiritual journey totally alone. And it's like, should I even go? Should I even do this? 
Should I even go to this modern day temple, if you will, this place of connection with God and with other people? Some of you are sitting there and the habit was just broken. Do you look at your last two years and you're like, that, it's not very spiritual, but I just stopped going. Just stopped happening. It stopped having the same life and vitality it once had. And it's much more difficult to get out of bed on Sunday morning and to get dressed and get the kids in the car and to get here just because the habit was broken. There's very, very real opposition. Can I tell you, if you want to grow, if you want to grow, whether it's finding a church or engaging in church or getting the most out of your time on a, even on a Sunday morning, you have to acknowledge that there's very real opposition to that. Like any growth in your life is going to take a little bit of pain. Any growth in your life is going to take a little bit of stretching out of your comfort zone. Any, any building, any rebuilding you want to do, whether it's in your spiritual life or you look at even our church as a whole, it's going to take some sacrifice. This is, this is the book of Haggai. Haggai's role was to call Israel out for building up their own houses, building up their own temples, putting uh, paneling was apparently a good thing back then, because that's what he says. You, you put up panels in your houses. You've put up like nicer structures than you normally would have while you walk by God's temple every day and it's falling apart. This place of connection is being disregarded. And to be honest, I, I, I look over the last couple of years, I've seen people just like you do this really, really well. And I've seen people who have handled some of those moments of opposition really, really poorly. And to me, I look at the people who do it well. Think about some of, the, some of you who in the most difficult moments of your life these last couple of years have not withdrawn and isolated, but you've leaned in. Some of you have been so crazy to give more. Some of you have showed up more. Some of you have said, I'll serve extra to fill in the gaps. Like I'll do more. To me, that is evidence that we've understood that, yeah, the temple's moved. Maybe it looks different, but God's presence is still here. If you want to connect with him, uh, luckily, it's not trapped between a dog groomer and a nail salon. Like, I'm glad for that. It, it, it does go with you. It is, it is there. It is when we gather together, wherever that ends up being. But there's something significant about giving yourself to a local church and giving yourself to a community of faith. And that's what I think Haggai was trying to point out to Israel. And I've seen people on the other side who just the slightest opposition, the slightest competing priority. And the first thing that they cut is being a part of a church. The first thing they cut is engaging. And I'm not saying that I could tell that probably sounds weird coming from a pastor. Like, yeah, I expect you to say that. But th this has been true in my journey, too. I've got competing priorities. I, I've got opportunities. I've got things that, that at the end of the day, I have to ask myself what matters the most. Like is connecting with God and with one another really at the top of my priority list? And, and sometimes it's not. See, Haggai's main rebuke and why this book stands out to me, and you can read the whole thing in a couple minutes, but the main rebuke he gives Israel was they prioritized their home over God's home. It was an inward conviction when they were supposed to be outward, they were supposed to be a blessing. They were supposed to be these people that, that actually interacted with their heavenly creator, with their God, with their divine leader, and they stopped doing it. And I said this uh, back in October, and I still think it's true. Like, I don't know what the future holds for our church. If you ask me, John, what is your 10-year plan for your church? I'd say the same as my life. No clue. That's what I would say. That maybe not to give you a lot of hope, but, but it's just like the future is so 
fluid and changing. I don't know what this will look like in 10 years, but I know, and I said this back in October again, like I do know there's two things that the future will be marked by. If we want to continue to grow and do everything I think God has called us to do, the first one is, is something we just called radical seeking, that we would radically seek Jesus in every single thing that we do, that we would never let a name or a budget or a program or a service rise above his name, that we'd always prioritize him in our daily disciplines as well as in our church life. And the second was that we'd be a place of radical invitation who would say, you know what? God doesn't really do much in our comfort zone. So we're going to step out. We're going to invite people. Some of you did that at Christmas. I applaud and I'm so grateful. Some of you came up to me like in December, like I'm inviting 12 people to Christmas Eve. And I was like, uh, where will they sit? Like, that was my first question. I'm like, glad we have two services to fit everybody. Like, or else we would have been really, really packed. And so I'm so grateful, but that's what it means. Radical invitation that you don't just say, this is for me, but we believe it's for everybody. And there are people in our life who don't have relationships with Jesus yet. And we would reach out and do that. I was struck by this and in the power of this, uh, I was reading a book by spiritual writer, Robert Mulholland, and he uh, recently retired and was reflecting on the church. Here's what he says. Without the nurturing growth and accountability of the community of faith, we will never have the clarity of discernment that will enable us to walk in Christ's way in the midst of a world that would try to bend us out of that way. See, that to me is one reason why it's so important to keep showing up, to put the, to kind of, if I use that old phrase, like to put the temple first, to, to put where God's presence and his connection with us actually happens. I heard a, a friend quoting a Peloton instructor a few days ago, this spin bike instructor. And one of the things they're like on the bike, they're going, he's like, just a reminder, I make suggestions, but you make decisions. It was like this super like motivational thing. Like I can suggest you up your resistance. I can suggest you go faster, but you got to do it. I can't force you to do it. And that in some ways is what Haggy, Haggai was doing. To be honest, that's in some ways how I see my role too. Like I can make suggestions, but if we don't decide to do it together, it's just going to be me talking for another 10 years. And I, and I don't want to be a part of a place like that. I mean, to me, the church is so much more important than that. Uh, third century church father Cyprian said this about it. He says, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. No one can have God as father who, who does not have the church's mother. Now, that's just saying you need to give every single, you need to bleed for the local church necessarily, but that is saying, where is it in your priority? Where, where is the temple when it comes to your family rhythm? See, the temple may have moved. We don't go to a physical location to find God's presence, but, but God's presence is when we gather. It is when we're together. The temple may have moved, but God's presence stayed. I want to give you one of the most powerful passages of scripture for me is in Acts 7. Acts 7, and then we'll be done. Acts 7 is this really, I mean, honestly, horrific scene of Stephen, the very first church martyr, being stoned to death. And as he's being led there, he's basically preaching on the way. He's preaching as he's going. I mean, you can read this in Acts. It's this very long chunk of text but one of the things he says in there that really, really ticks the religious elite off, he says this in Acts 7, 48, that however, 
He's talking about the temple and how it's moved and how God's people are, are changing. And Jesus is now the cornerstone of this new temple. We center our lives on him. He said, the temple may move, but in, in verse 48, he says, the, the, God, the most high, the most high does not dwell in, in houses made of human hands. And that makes them mad. They're like, what are you saying? And he's saying, well, God's presence, it now dwells within you. It dwells within us. It dwells within every local church that calls Jesus Lord and gives their life to him and submit and surrender to him. Like the temple moved for Stephen, but God's presence stayed. It was a place of connection. It's, it's us. It's we now, the church, are the new temple. Like we're in the, in the wake of Jesus and all he has done. It's this beautiful foretaste. And, and I hope this is true. And I pray this every single Sunday. I drive down Byron Center Avenue. That, that you and I and anyone who's brand new to our church would walk in and taste a little bit of what heaven could be like. A little bit of what heaven on earth could be like. Because as Acts 7, 48 goes on, literally says that the heavens were opened. And as Stephen breathes his last, like the hope is, and what I think the writers of Acts, Luke, is trying to point out is that it actually is this inbreaking moment. It's a moment for the religious elite who thought that God was housed in a, in a place they built to say, no, no, his, his temple may have moved, but God's presence, it's still available. It's still there. And it's more powerful and needed than ever. So people ask me, and some people, some of you have asked me this over this last year, like when, when is the church at its best? What, what, what is the church at its best? Is the church at its best when it has a full budget it's bringing in more dollars than ever. It's doing building campaigns. It's got the nicest chairs or the nicest floors. No, that's not when the church is at its best. There's a church at its best when it has the best kids program ever. Like kids just want to stay there for two services or two hours. And, and that's all they can talk about. And that's all that you care about. It's like, as long as my kids are happy, I'm happy. Is that when the church is at its best? I don't think so. Is the church at its best when it has the biggest building and most influence in a community? When everyone knows the name, everyone knows what we're doing, everyone sees the logo and knows it's center church. Is that when the church is at its best? No. Is the church at its best when, when John Gorvet is known and viral on YouTube and everyone follows me on, on my dinky little Instagram account? Is that, the, is that when the church is at its best? No. The church is at its best when it is a living, breathing temple full of God's presence and power. When it's, it's a place where people can walk in and see and meet Jesus. That's my friends, when the church is at its best. That's why we keep giving. That's why we keep serving. That's why we keep inviting. That's why we keep showing up even when there's opposition, because God's presence is still here and still working and still worth giving our lives to. And so today I'm gonna to challenge you, if you call Center Church home, maybe even if you just checked this place out for the first time, I'm gonna challenge you to do something. I'm gonna challenge you in 2022 to move from renting God's church, renting God's temple to being an owner. See, renters can treat things kind of haphazardly. You can kind of treat it how you want and you can access it when you want, but you don't really care. 
because you know someone else will take care of it. Owners, they care. I, I don't own my house yet, but I have a mortgage on it. I guarantee you, I care way more about what happens to my house than when I lived in an apartment. There's a big difference. And I'm gonna challenge you this year to move from renting to owning. This was the dilemma Israel had to face in the book of Haggai. They had to decide, are we gonna own God's house? Are we gonna contribute and sacrifice to rebuild even when there's opposition? And so I don't know what moving from renting to owning means for you. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. I don't, I don't necessarily even know like where you're at on your church journey. And maybe for you, it is to start giving this year. Maybe for you, it is to start serving and to giving yourself. Maybe for you, it is to invite some people. Or maybe for you, it's to move to just showing up, to being consistent and to being engaged. I don't, I don't know what it is for you, but here's what I know. God has placed us and given us a vision and mission. And there's no other church that can do what Center Church can do. Not that there are not other churches, but God has given us a unique vision and mission to live out. And I don't believe he's done. And so I wanna pray for you and just invite you <laughs> knowing that we're probably in a similar place. There's probably tiredness. For some of you, there's grief. For some of you, there's apathy. For some of you, there's spiritual boredom. And I wanna just call us out of that. I wanna call myself out of that this year. Just say, God, because you have pursued us, you have given us a vision and a people to pursue back. That's how you've wired us. So God, we, we really do. We come before you in humility. Are you needing? We come before you thirsty. We come before you realizing that, that you have given us a responsibility, a divine one. That though the temple may have moved, we don't drive to a building to find you. You've actually put the temple within us. You've actually called us to be carriers of your presence. That even when we gather together, your presence is, is, is with us in a unique way we can't experience on our own. I thank you for that. I pray that you would draw us out, that you'd allow us to encounter you, that the church would not be a thing we do, it'd be a people we become this year. That we would move from just renting and using your services and become the kind of people who own it, who re-up on our commitment to, to not just you and our relationship with you, but how you use us in community and connection with one another. So I thank you for that. I thank you that in our dark moments, you give us the church. I thank you that in our best moments of celebration and rejoicing, you offer us the church. And in the moments in between, you offer us the church. You offer us your presence housed, not in a building, but in living, breathing vessels. So we love you and we commit that to you, God. We, we ask that you to be magnified and glorified and lifted up in this place. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. I invite you to stand as we sing together and worship our God.